the Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Can you hear me now? Yeah, now I can hear you. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. So I press the record. Okay. Here we okay. go. Thank you. Who's recording? Are, are you at the office? I'm at the office. I am recording. Uh, oh, thank you. Okay. You see, I have like, I'm on my 4G now. Hopefully it'll last because I don't know. I was recording on the Zencasta right. and there were some problems. So you guys are killing me. You and Elena. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, All right. Okay. It's like the marathon today. Okay. So don't mind me, you guys. Hello, everybody. My name is Stevie Kim and welcome to the Ambassador's Corner. And today, our fireside chat is with Federico Graziani. As you know, this is called, it used to be called Italian Wine Club. Now it's called Italian Wine House. There's basically nobody except our Italian wine ambassadors. I think we need a shout out. We need to give a shout out to our <laughs> Italian wine ambassadors. You got to push that clap button like a... Yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, special effects from Verona. Because I'm in Franciacorta today. It was crazy because as soon as I entered the room, there was this strong, strong like fan going. It was so noisy. I called the reception. They turned it off. And now they're mowing on. So and the Wi-Fi is bad. So we'll see what happens. Oh, Alice Wang just joined us. And we have Elena, Susanna, Julia, Valentina, Angie, Cynthia, Elena, Elena, Elena. And Alan Kwok from Hong Kong and Alice. Thank you so much, you guys, for manning that Vinital International Academy Hong Kong edition. Thank you so much. Now on to our show. So Ambassador's Corner, you know the deal. I think everybody knows by now. We replay the entire episode on Italian Wine Podcast on replay. And that's where we get lots of lots of listens. It's actually very geeky, but people seem to really love this series. And today's host is Charlotte Ho. Ciao, Charlotte. Ciao. Ciao, Stevie. Okay. Uh, where, where are you now? Um, I'm in Hong Kong right now. Okay. So you're with Alice and Alan. Charlotte is our Italian wine ambassador. Tell us a little bit about yourself to our audience. So I am um, an Italian wine ambassador from VIA um, since last year. I did the course um, in Hong Kong um, last summer. Uh, before that, I actually also did the Maestro course. Um, actually, it was during COVID um, when I couldn't travel to Italy that I started, you know, systematically studying and learning about Italian grapes and wines. And apart from, you know, volunteering in events and tastings in Hong Kong, I also uh, started an um, Instagram dedicated to sharing uh, my love and knowledge for Italian wines. What so, is it called? Um, it's called Those Wine Moments. So some of you may already follow me. First of all, thanks, Stevie, for inviting me to co-host today's podcast. Um, so those of you who know me or you know drink with me will know that I'm a huge fan of Etna wines. In fact, um, this is my second Italian wine podcast. Um, and the last episode I did was also an interview with another Etna producer. But yes, back to Federico. Um, so to me, Federico Graziani's wines give me a sense of familiarity um, because it strikes a chord of harmony and resonance with my own personal experience, falling in love with Etna as well as wines of Etna. To me, you know, 
as a celebrated sommelier, Federico would have tried so many brilliant wines all over, right? But he fell in love with this magical place that he will be telling us more about. Um, and even though he himself was not an ethnolocal, he still decided to take the leap, you know, a leap of faith and has decided to dedicate his life now to making wines on Etna. I mean, for those who have been lucky enough, like myself, um, to have met Federico in person, um, you will also understand what a gentle and humble person he is. Um, his wines taste, of course, fantastic, but not only do his wines taste fantastic, but they also express, you know, the Etna um, terroir, but they also tell you, in a way, the kind of person um, that is making the wine. Um, you know, a really lovely gentleman that today I have the great pleasure to interview. So finally, I think I just wanted to add that I, I actually visited Federico um, in Sicily about two months ago. Um, and tasting wines in Federico's vineyards is beautiful because you will be sitting under, you know, several ancient olive trees, um, including one that is uh, over like 800 years. So Charlotte, tell us a little bit about what the learning objectives for today's call with Federico. Several things that I hope to get Federico to share with us today, uh, apart from you know, introducing his wines and his vineyards. Um, obviously, we will talk a little bit about the native varieties on Etna that many of us in the audience should be uh, familiar, such as Caricante, Nerello Mascalese, but also um, Alicante and Francesi. So secondly, I would like to also explore Federico's choice, including certain maybe not so obvious uh, international grape varieties um, in making an Etna white wine and how these grape varieties perform in the volcanic terroir um, of Edna. And finally, just Federico's advice for anyone maybe considering a change in career to work in wine or, you know, anything that he could share with us uh, from his own personal experience in taking a leap of faith um, to become a winemaker. Fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to this. If I can get mm -hmm. my Wi-Fi straightened out, <laughs> I feel like I'm in a third world country. Charlotte, you take over. Hopefully I can sure. come back to us at the end of the show. Okay. No problem. Before I introduce uh, Federico, maybe I can just also quickly mention that how I discovered Federico's wines, because I was trying out a lot of Etna wines um, in Hong Kong during COVID when I was stuck there. And the first thing that struck me when I tried Federico's wine was in fact the name of the wine, uh, Profumo di Volcano, and which he will talk about later. But literally that means the perfume of the volcano. And this name just right away you know, sort of blew my mind. And, and it provoked such a mysterious sensation that for me is unforgettable. It just stuck with me. Um, so the wine was so special that, um, as you know, I've just mentioned, I, I have a wine Instagram. Actually, the first ever post that I've posted on my Instagram um, about Italian wines is a post on Profumo di Volcano. So it does say a little bit about how special Federico's wines are to me. There you go. Love it first sight. <laughs> exactly. How many Etna wines have you tried in your life? Uh, well, quite a lot. So I would probably need to count after the podcast and, and sort of let you know later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it was a... Already. Listen, we're going to do it again next year. So you need to come next year. All right. So let me introduce Federico. Federico Graziani was just 15 years old when he decided to follow his passion and enroll in his first uh, sommelier course back in 1990. His passion would soon become his vocation as he carved out a living in the world of wine. Um, in 1998, he was awarded the best sommelier in Italy, an official recognition that offered him the opportunity to work alongside Gualtiero Marchesi, Stefano Cavallini, Bruno Lube, Car Carlo Cracco, as well as Aimo and Nadia Moroni. So very impressive. Um, without further ado, let us welcome Federico Graziani. Ciao Federico, come stai? Ciao, 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 ciao. How are you? I'm very Really well. nice to have you here. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I gave a very brief introduction about you just now, but maybe I should let you introduce yourself um, to us and tell us a little bit more um, about your own story, um, how your life in wine started, how it evolved and how it brought you to where you are now, making these beautiful wines on Mount Etna in Sicily. Thank you about this question. I... It would take, uh, yeah, a, a bit <laughs> of time because it's, uh, it's a long story. 
Um, as you said, I started uh, like for pleasure to do the first course of sommelier when I was 15. So I, and in uh, the last 33 years, I'd say, mm -hmm. I've always been in the wine. If you take uh, the wine of my life, uh, it doesn't really last much. Mm -hmm. um, first course, uh, second, third, I was studying hotellerie in, um, in the eastern side of Italy. I'm from Ravenna, so a small town on the Adriatic coast. So not an area where big wines are not very mm -hmm. famous for restaurants, but I had uh, this passion for service and wine, and I became um, sommelier of important restaurants, as you said, like Walter Marchese was, yeah, open mind uh, of my of my career, and then other important. Uh, I, I've been working in London for three years, so this was very important as a sommelier. So I could discover. Um, worldwide wines uh, compared to Italy where just these days we are starting to drink uh, a lot of foreigner wines out mm -hmm. in France and, and Germany so it was quite important for my um, yeah, for my palate to have the chance to work in London as well. and, uh, and after I came back uh, to Milan for the opening of Carlo Cracco so it was quite um, Important wine list was more than 2,200 uh, labels. Uh, was a oh, impressive. Yeah, was a fantastic wine list. Was a dream, uh, mm -hmm. uh, sommelier dream wine list. And uh, but when I stopped working for Carlo Cracco, I decided to start university with uh, Attilio Scienza. So he was in Milan at the time. I was in Milan, so I decided to follow his course. Mm -hmm. um, and was so important for me uh, because it's, you know, Stevie know him very well. It's uh, it's amazing for me how how he can uh, transmit uh, all, all the knowledge. Uh, knowledge, and, yeah. Uh, yes, I had the chance during this period to write a little bit about uh, wines. So from 2006 to 2000, and I would say 2012, I kept writing uh, some books, mm -hmm. mainly about Italian wines, but uh, yes, in, in my past in my past life. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, yes, in 2008, I was working in a restaurant. I was working as a sommelier at uh, Aimo Nadia in Milan. And I discovered a little vineyard that was going to be explanted uh, after one month. And was at that time was my second time in in Athena, so I decided to to save this little vineyard. Mm -hmm. It was very small; it was just half an hectare, but uh, was very important for me because uh, uh, was a starting point in a fantastic, uh, unique wine region. At that time, consider Athena was was not as known as today. Yeah. It's, it's little, I mean, it's just 15 years ago, or a little bit more, but uh, it's, it's very important uh, how it developed. I would say more than 200 wineries are growing since then. So mm -hmm. I was in the first 40, and now we're more than 250. So it's uh, really exploding as a, as a terroir. Mm -hmm. And I found some very unique uh, things uh, that we might discover in, in time during this chat. Sure. Okay. Um, next, I, I will ask you to tell us a little bit more about the location of your vineyards, and that's something you already touched on um, just now. But apart from the more known northern slope of Etna, where I think a lot of these 200 wineries um, that, that are at least internationally known have mm. their vineyards on, I know you also have vineyards on the western side of the volcano, which is you know less known to the international audience. Um, some of the vineyards are close to Bronte, which is most famous for pistachio, right? So, exactly. can you maybe, yeah, can you maybe tell us a more uh, a bit more about these vineyards, and also in particular why you decided to work on vineyards um, also on the western slopes? Actually, um, you know, but maybe some some of your guests don't. I I don't live always in Sicily. Even if I do 100% uh, today, I, I work just for, for, for my winery, 100%. But uh, I live uh, close to Venice in uh, Conigliano. 
So yes. you can imagine how not uh, easy is mm -hmm. to to have a winery 1,200 meters, uh, 1,300 kilometers away from where you away. live. Mm -hmm. So it was very important at that time to focus on a very small area, mm -hmm. even because uh, the people working uh, with me in the vineyard are from all from Randazzo. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't afford actually to have a vineyard in the eastern side. It's too far away. It's just a 35, 30. 40 kilometers is not much, but it takes more than one hour to get in the other side. So if you imagine, um, first of all, it's, uh, you know, you lose a lot of time to go from one side to the other. But the most important thing is these people working in my vineyard are crucial for the quality of my wine because they have under, they always, uh, they always control the area. They know uh, what, whatever is happening and I'm, I'm talking about uh, climate wise and uh, it's so important the locals know best <laughs> it's very important for them mm -hmm. to be to to know everything and uh, uh, by climate uh, the northern slope of etna and the eastern slope of etna are very very different mm -hmm. if you imagine uh, the rainfall uh, it's uh, about 1,000, 1,100 millimeters per year in the northern slope from 800, 900, it depends. But in the eastern side, it goes up to 1,500, 1,800. So it's one of the most rainy area in Sicily, but I would say in most of Italy. And uh, as you can imagine, it's so important to be... Um, always on that side uh, continuously. And uh, that's why I try to focus on the northern slope, very close to Randazzo. So I, mm -hmm. all the vineyards for the red are between uh, Passo Pisciaro and Monte La Guardia. They are two very quite famous villages for red. And as you were mentioning before, the white, uh, the white vineyard, the white grape vineyard, it's inside the Bronte Common, so it's northern west, it's already after Randazzo, so it's considered est, uh, west, northern west. So it's outside it's, the DOC, right? Well, it's outside the CG almost. <laughs> because yes. the, the DOC in the northern slope, is, it, it ends up 800 meters above the sea level. While mm -hmm. the vineyard I bought, uh, it's 1, 000, nearly 1,200 meters of the sea level, so it's right. nearly 400 meters above, above the, yeah. uh, the limit. And that's why uh, it's outside the DOC, because of this reason, because Bronte is not inside the DOC. You, mm -hmm. you have just northern, east, and south as a DOC common uh, inside the DOC. And the last, uh, as, as you were mentioning, at that altitude, the, the Caricante, the native variety from uh, Etna, mm -hmm. don't ripe, don't ripe mm -hmm. uh, as well. So... Um, Salvo Forti before me and uh, myself, we decided, he decided to plant some uh, uh, Northern European variety. I integrated them. And today I have a vineyard with four different varieties. Mm -hmm. Those are Renan Riesling, Chenin Blanc, Gewustraminer, and Grecanico. That is the only native variety that is actually ripening at that altitude. Okay, interesting. So maybe without further ado, let's talk about your, your white wine, um, since we were talking about the, 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 the vineyards um, where the yeah. white varieties are grown. So for the audience, um, Federico's signature white wine is um, Maraneve. And Maraneve is probably the most interesting white wine from Etna that I have tasted so far. Um, it is a white blend. Um, so as Federico mentioned, not, you know, just uh, Caricante, but also there is Grecanico, but there is also international varieties such as Riesling, Gavustramina and Chenin Blanc. So can you tell us a little bit more about your Maraneve, how you decided on this blend? Actually, Maraneve was um, born in my mind uh, by driving with Salvo Forti from uh, northern to eastern uh, slope of the Etna. Uh, we were taking this road uh, called Marneve, and I asked Salvo, ah. that's uh, 
weird. It's a fantastic name. Who, who's calling Marineve is uh, is fine. He said, I don't know. I don't think anybody. <laughs> and and he said, okay, you'll do it. You keep it this name. And this was like uh, 2010, I think. I didn't have him. 2011, maybe. I didn't have in mind to produce white wine, but uh, I registered the name because I thought it was a fantastic name for a white wine. It's beautiful, yes. So, yes, so it's an existing name. It's not uh, something I invented. Invented, yeah. It reproposed it. And I think it's very important because it's a road that goes from, actually from the eastern side. So it starts in Milo and it goes... uh, uh, that is uh, very close to the sea and is uh, looks uh, at the sea and it goes up to the refugee where you have the ski lift for skiing because you know you can ski on Etna to ta- the sea to the snow yeah exactly yeah. it goes up to 2200 meters above the sea level this refugee called La Piano Provenzana and then it goes down to the northern slope because uh, the the Via Marineve it end up in Lingua Glossa that is connecting oh the two the two slope of the Etna where, where I produce sort sort of this wine so it's quite uh, you know Italian wine podcast brought to you by mama jumbo shrimp after 2017 I decided to add uh, the caricante so the caricante doesn't ripe at that altitude in uh, Bronte so I decided to ran a little bit, uh, a little vineyard uh, by Salvofoti on the eastern side, so actually from Milo. And we have this wine that is uh, connecting the two slopes like the, right. the Marineve, Via Marineve does. And it's, uh, yeah, I think it's um, it's quite big wine. I have to say, compared to even my red wines, I think today Etna is growing very well growing very fast we have very the, the wines are better than 15 years ago for sure so i it's easy for me to to recommend uh, 10 15 20 other very good ethna producers they make uh, very good ethna red as i do but it's more difficult to to try to find a substitute to marineve because it's so unique in blend and uh, and and i think is uh, one of his uh, point of Power is is you cannot replace it. If you like it, you have to come back to Maraneve. Yes, exactly. So for the latest uh, vintage uh, that has been released, what what are the percentages of of the various um, grapes? Like the, the I mean, uh, after the first vintage in which the Caricante was not there, I decided mm-hmm. to add the Caricante to make it more, a bit less aromatic mm-hmm. and uh, a bit more related to Etna. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, so 16 was my first vintage. And uh, since uh, 17, I would say the blend is more or less uh, very similar. Mm-hmm. And, it would, and I would say it's about 30% of uh, Caricante, 25% of Gewurztraminer and Renan Riesling, another 25%, 15% of Chenin Blanc and 5% of Grecanico. And Grecanico actually is, yes, just a few plants on the borders of uh, mm-hmm. of the vineyard. The idea was to try to produce a wine very, very um, thin, very delicate. And so still in vinification, I try to do as less as possible, try to keep it as thin as possible, very mm-hmm. drinkable. All right. Um, so regarding the, the Gavustramina, it's, it's quite an unusual grape that you would expect from an Etna white wine. Was it correct that there was already some Gavustramina in the vineyards um, or did you decide to, to plant it there? Actually, I found Riesling and Gavustramina. You, you found them there, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, it was Salvo Forti. I'm, I'm working with Salvo Forti in the vineyard. We have the same guys working in the vineyard. So I, I think it's very important for me to have... Uh, is help because uh, living so far away, apart from the fact that I'm, I'm far away from them, but that they are really the best people to work in the vineyard. I met in uh, many areas in Italy. So it's, uh, it's very important for me to work with them 
because they're very capable of intending the alberello. I just work with the alberello system. It's very labor intensive. And so, yes, as, as yes. A, or at that altitude, uh, mm. you had uh, very little choices because the normal variety, they don't ripe at that altitude. So we, he looked for Northern European variety. I integrated it with Chenin because I think uh, it's one of my favorite varieties as well. And added some complexity with the Caricante at the end. I think today we have this blend that is quite unique. The Wurz gives a little bit of, of course, of... Uh, On the nose already, yeah. immediately. Yeah. Um, Riesling brings some minerality. I have to say it's, uh, it's a sort of, um, as a taste, uh, the single uh, vines, are, they, they taste less, a little bit like uh, in the Loire Valley. Think of the Sauvignon from Sancerre and Puy Fumé. They are not as aromatic as other Sauvignon. And I think this is happening a little bit in the volcanic soil as well. Yes, I was uh, going to ask you about you know yeah. how the volcanic soil influences. Yeah. Uh, well, like that riesling and uh, especially the riesling, the gewurztraminer, uh, but also the riesling. They are quite humbled by the volcanic soil. They are not as blowing in um, in aroma as they should be in, in right. or, or as they are in other no volcanic soil. And I think this is very important for the palate. And um, and I try to help to keep this aroma very low by, for example, by harvesting the Gewustraminer one week before. I don't like very aromatic wines. I, this should be quite clear at this point. But at the same time, I think uh, the Gewustraminer is very important in the blend of Marineve because it gives some uh, nuance of uh, rose, lychee, mm, uh, white peach. And the idea is to keep it very, very white. Right. And right. not to leave the gewurztraminer going too alcoholic because they, the gewurztraminer uh, tend to uh, get a lot of sugar. And mm. I don't like very alcoholic wines. Mm. And by the other side, I think it's very important not to have a tropical fruit because it's uh, maybe more powerful, but uh, less uh, less elegant. And mm. I to look for elegance in wines. No, and, and if anything, um, the Marineve is very elegant. It's, it is uh, nothing that is heavy at all. So I think um, I definitely agree um, with, with what you've done there. Um, just a quick, I, I note that there's a question from the audience. Um, Louis asks about whether the, there is a varietal labeled Chenin Blanc um, or 100%. So I guess we've kind of answered it already. It was um, the Maraneve is a blend. Yeah, it's not 100% um, varietal. I tasted the Gewurztraminer by itself because I harvest before the other variety. Mm-hmm. The other three variety, they are vinified together. So I wouldn't know today. I don't have enough quantity to make a small vinification by itself. So uh, I actually don't know how it tastes a single Chenin. Right. On okay. But uh, maybe in the future, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Okay, maybe um, let's move on to your red wines. I mean, I talked about the Profumo um, di Volcano in, in my intro. Yeah. Perhaps you could tell us uh, your story about this wine? Yes, as I, as I was uh, starting to say, I was a happy sommelier, just got my degree at university in winemaking and viticulture. Just going for 2006, I uh, went uh, to Sicily because I tasted some wines uh, from Tenuta Terrenere. And I was like, hmm, this is not the Sicily I know. Let's go and have a look. As, as I did many times in many wine regions, I did it, I would say, all my life, in uh, probably in three, four continents, uh, and uh, I mean that was part of my of my duty, you know, to go and visit the producer and taste wines and uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go. I decided to go in 2006 for the first time, and I discovered a unique uh, terroir. I met uh, fantastic people like Andrea Franchetti, 
like uh, Marco De Grazia from Tenute Terre Nere yes. and uh, Salvo Forti. Uh, with Salvo Forti, it was like a friendship started like... Uh, I, I was more in line with many things. Uh, so I decided... I, I didn't decide. It just we kept, we kept uh, on our friendship and we started to talk uh, more often than, than the other producer. And so it uh, was 2008 when I decided to... Actually, I was uh, doing an itinerary on um, on Italy because I was um, doing a book. The book is called Vini d'Autore, and I was like uh, interviewing many people. So I started from uh, Milan and I went down and I went uh, to Soldera, to Marita Cuomo, mm-hmm. to Giuseppe Benanti, Salvo Foti. Mm-hmm. There was like, yes sort of a trip uh, during during vacation where I was doing interview to all these people. And uh, Salvo Foti offered me to stay for a few days in his uh, little house inside uh, the Paso Picharo area where he produced the Vino Petra. And so I decided, yes, thank you. So I stayed there for a few days. I was uh, keep writing, so finishing my book. And the day I was like uh, giving the key back to him, we were having a granita in the Paso Picharo. There is one single bar in Paso Picharo, so it's a very small village. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how small, a few hundred people only. And uh, this uh, actually was um, very important because uh, the day I was uh, giving the key back to him, the butcher of Paso Picharo came in and asked him a suggestion and help about explanting a small vineyard, all the small vineyard next to his. Mm-hmm. And so I said, uh, Salvo, please, uh, let, let's go and have a look because I, you know, I, I had a fantastic uh, feeling about old vines. Uh, I love old vines and it was like, let's go and have a look. And so that's how I started. I asked Salvo to help me to save this little vineyard. Actually, it remained like a sort of uh, hobby for me for a few years. A quite expensive hobby, but an hobby. <laughs> and, uh, an expensive perfume. So, yes, that's how it started. Uh, so that's that little vineyard that you talked about from the beginning is the vineyard that's producing um, the, the grapes for the wine of Profumo di Volcano. Exactly, exactly. Okay. I have to say for about six years, uh, Profumo di Volcano always been from that single vineyard. In 2017, I bought, I found, and I bought another half an hectare, still 100 years old vineyard. As an average, you have a average vineyard. You don't have a single age of vineyard. And so today I have two plots of about half an hectare each. And uh, so since 2019, I have uh, sort of doubled my uh, Profumo di Vulcano bottles from 1,400 to 3,000. Big numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're very lucky to to be able to, to taste them all the way across the world in Hong Kong here. Well, in the Profumo, you, you have other native varieties. I, I guess, you know, any wines from these old vineyards, it will be uh, sort of a mix of, you know, some of these native varieties uh, alongside the, the, the Nero Mascalese and Cappuccio. Um, and I'm aware there are Alicante and Francesi. Um, yes. So most of us in the audience, well, will be familiar with Nerello Mascalese and Cappuccio, but perhaps um, Alicante on Etna, but also Francesi is something that we would be less familiar. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about how these, I know they aren't in great um, sort of quantities in the wine, but how, how would these um, other grapes contribute to the result wine? Actually, yes, this is a good question. We know today Etna Rosso is made 70, no, 80%, at least 8% Nerello Mascalese and the rest is Nerello Cappuccio. So those two varieties, they play the game. But if you, look, if you have a old vineyard, uh, the period in which we decided to have just Nerello Mascalese is just from Second World War. So uh, actually, even after, it was like from the 60s when uh, the DOC Etna um, decided to have just Nerello Mascalese and Cappuccio. Uh, so in the old vineyard, it's, it's a mess. Uh, as you say, we have an Alicante, uh, 
and we have a franchisee, but also we have a, in the Profumoli Vulcano vineyard at least 50 plants of white grapes. Ah. So there are there are there. It's a it's a garden. You don't you you don't take them off. It's like uh, most of them are prephylloxera. So they they have been together. They have been together all their lives. And for me, it makes sense to take them together. Of course, there are differences between uh, old vineyard and new vineyard because. Uh, as you can imagine, by a vinification point of view, it's much easier to work with one variety on one mm. variety like Nerello, Cappuccio, and but mainly Mascalese, then uh, to work with ten different varieties together because it's you cannot uh, take uh, make a different vinification um, because all the plants are co-planted. It's, it's not like there are section of each mm. variety. So you have a. I found a plant of Muscat a few years, few years ago, inside Pomodoro Volcano Vineyard. So uh, it's it's not easy. It's not easy, but uh, we can we can analyze it and say what Alicante it's uh, is bringing to the wine, what Francesi is bringing, and first of all we go to see Nerello Mascalese. We know today, Attilio Scienza made a lot of uh, DNA investigation about that, mm-hmm. that uh, Nerolo Mascarese is a son of uh, Sangiovese. Sangiovese. Yeah. Yes. And uh, today we know as well that Nerolo Cappuccio is a twin of um, another quite important variety called Carignano. Mm. So if we go back to Alicante, we know Alicante is the same variety as a Grenache. So it's a Grenache. So it's, it will be easier with this uh, relationship, I mean, genetically, uh, genetic relationship to understand more what they bring to the wine. And franchisee, actually, it's, it's something a little bit undiscovered, so we don't know exactly what it is. In terms of uh, taste, uh, it reminds me a little bit of Cabernet Franc, but I don't think there is a genetic ah, relationship. Okay. So... At the end of the day, what this small variety brings to the wine, I would say um, Nerello Cappuccio brings a little bit of uh, color and a, a little bit of spice. Uh, the Alicante, the Grenache brings this uh, a bit wider aroma, quite uh, Mediterranean, I would say, mm-hmm. like uh, herbal, uh, oregano, majoran olive paste, this kind of character, and Francesi a little a little bit of green, a little bit of uh, aromatic side. White grape brings what they have, uh, a bit of acidity, so it's, uh, yes, it's not easy, it's not easy. Well, beautiful. And actually, I recall reading somewhere that you described, I think in, on your website, that you described the Profumo as mixed blood of Etna, and, and you know, from what you've just said, I think yeah, um, um, yeah, a very, uh, very uh, vivid uh, visual uh, description. So you know, I mean, many of us will agree that Etna's soul, the volcanic soul, is something um, that honest and authentic Etna wines would 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 express. So, what about the volcano? Do you hope to express in your wines, and how do the volcanic souls um, contribute um, in 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 expressing yeah. this? I think we don't have to forget, first of all, that the volcano, first of all, is a big, big mountain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so connected to the volcano, but not as a volcano of soil, we have the altitude that is related to the volcano. Yes. So it's very important because it's not, uh, you, you know, in Etna we have terraces because we don't have any consistency of the soil. So if you want to keep the land, you have to make terraces. You cannot have a other way of keeping the the sand inside uh, inside a in a small space. So uh, this makes another difference in the in the soil. What brings to the wine because the the soil is always very draining, so never mm. water retained. Of course, the volcano seems to bring some uh, smoky related to for aroma and if you think of a regular 
Etna Rosso, for example, and you think of a very traditional Chianti, I think one minus the other, you can you can have the, the feeling of what the volcanic soil gives. Yes, a sort of uh, minerality and stone aroma, something related to sulfur, as I said, that, that is quite, uh, quite important. Yes. And, uh, and I think it comes uh, in the wine, especially when in, during the aging. So this is a sort of incense aroma, a smoked tea. They are all coming stronger and stronger after two, two three, four, one, uh, four years of aging. But uh, yes, that I would say is the character of the volcano coming out. Mm. Of course, in the in the Profumo di Vulcano, we have a bigger amount of uh, aroma coming out because of the, um, as you said, the, the mixed blood, the mm. biodiversity inside the vineyard gives this uh, more complexity. <laughs> but is yes, a complexity that is a, a little bit hard to handle because it's uh, <laughs> as, as I said, you have to play with ten different varieties at the same time. Mm. Yeah, it's very elegant, but it's still wild. That's, yeah. that's how I how I taste it. Well, we've talked about old vines and you know tradition and and a lot of that. But while staying true to tradition and authenticity, I also know that you know Federico, you are very much into novelty as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit more and share with the audience about your new um, glass bottles and also unique identification for each bottle that you've been working on recently? I think, uh, yes, I, I would do with pleasure. It's um, Working with Salvofotti means being part of this Evigneri. Uh, it's a sort of consortium, so it's a cooperation uh, in which we used to have a, a, a single bottle for the, all, of, all of us. Yeah. But, uh, I felt like uh, in this period, since uh, three, four years that I'm working by myself and I do just this, I have to find a little bit more of identity of my mm-hmm. winery. So I decided to keep working with them. It's very important for me. And I would always thank Salvo for, for what is helping me in doing what, I, what I'm doing. But I think I need more identity. So uh, I wanted to have... Uh, uh, a bottle with my name, but I don't like uh, really much when you have the logo in front of you. So I decided mm-hmm. to put on the bottom of the bottle. Uh, so you just uh, recognize it and discover it when you put your bottle in the cellar. So I think and it's it, lying horizontally. Yeah. Right? And yeah. you can see the bottom. And yeah. I have to say it's also less expensive than to your <laughs> complete bottle. I have to be honest with you. But uh, I, I like the idea to have it something not uh, shout, something not uh, scream, and just you say you you recognize it just when you when you lie your bottle down, uh, something nice. Uh, I decided uh, one year ago to uh, to add uh, a small microchip to every single bottle. Mm-hmm. So. Actually, under the label, you can find from the vintage 2021. Actually, I decided as uh, nearly most of the Burgundy producer to go on the market with all my wines after two years from harvest. So I went out on the market a couple of months ago with the 2021 vintage and all the 2021 vintage today has this uh, little microchip, microchip, under the front label, where you can just with the NFC reader, mm-hmm. so any phone, any, any device, you can uh, read uh, the single bottle of uh, the number of the bottle you are drinking. And you have the possibility of uh, having your certificate of origin of, of uh, authenticity of the wine. And it's important for me because... Uh, Actually, I don't see where exactly where the bottle is uh, mm, uh, is going. <laughs> but I, I see, for example, in the area. So, if I sell some bottles in Sicily and I found it in Hong Kong, now I can recognize uh, that somebody maybe sold the bottle where. And it's uh, it's important for me at this point to to protect 
the market and at the same time to give uh, the chance to all my clients to, to be sure about the bottles because, you know, in fine wines that the number of mm. bottles, the fake bottles are very, very high numbers. I don't know if it's something around 20%. Mm, wow. I think they would copy my wine, obviously, but uh, at the same time, I think it's uh, important to start early because if in ten years uh, I will get a little bit more famous, maybe somebody will start thinking of it and protecting mm. <laughs> yourself when you are small and young, it's uh, it's better. Mm-hmm. Okay, speaking about novelty. Um, any exciting new projects in the making? What should we expect from you next? We have uh, a lot of things coming, <laughs> I have to say. Um, I'm excited to hear it, so share with us. <laughs> uh, we didn't talk in this, uh, in this uh, chat about uh, one of the wine I started producing in 2018. For the first time, uh, uh, I didn't produce Profumo di Vulcano because it was a too rainy vintage. So I decided to produce... Uh, 18, right? Uh, to, yes, to declass the Profumo di Vulcano to a different wine. I didn't want to put all the very old vineyard in the Etna Rosso, so I vinified in steel. And uh, it came out a wine that I called Rosso di Mezzo. Mm-hmm. That is really surprised me. Because you have the complexity of uh, you have the complexity of a very old vineyard and the, the Papiloxera wildness and all this variety together, but you have the purity of um, the steel, because usually Profumo di Vulcano is uh, aged in uh, Tonneau. In this case, I, I thought that the Profumo the the, the wine wouldn't have. Uh, and all the oak, so I decided to, to keep it in. But was a, so fresh, so elegant, so drinkable, and it's very, very important for me, uh, for my style, to have this uh, wine uh, in terms of elegance. And uh, I decided to replant, uh, to produce again this uh, wine that made, was made just in one year, so special. Um, I decided to plant an ungrafted vineyard. following year, I had to keep on the market, so I used for Rosso di Mezzo the oldest part, but not 100 years old, of the vineyard. I have in Paso Picharo, and I've stolen a tonneau from uh, Profumo di Vulcano to do a wine. Mm-hmm. A very little number of bottles just to keep, you know, the, the label going on. And this was supposed to be the first vintage of the ungrafted vineyard I planted that comes from the Profumo Vulcano, of course, is just pieces of uh, vineyard taken from, uh, from, from that vineyard, from the very old vineyard, and putting on the ground without ungrafted. Ungrafted. Okay, that's very interesting. What's happening now? Because uh, Rosso di Mezzo today is it's a wine and uh, it's probably one of my favorite wine as well. So I'm not sure if uh, the ungrafted would be back to this wine or will be a new wine. Uh, just we will see. And in fact, um, actually, one of the, um, my friends um, in the audience, also another ambassador, Susanna, she brought a bottle of Rosso di Mezzo, the 2018, to yeah. one of the dinners uh, that uh, you know uh, that 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 we had in Hong Kong. Alan was there as well. Bella was there as well. They are also here um, in the audience now. But um, it it was a beautiful wine. So. I'm, I'm really excited um, to see what the the engrafted uh, uh, yeah. can produce. And doing some experiment with Riesling as well. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I tried that, so maybe yeah. tell the audience a little bit it, about it. In 2019, I vinified uh, a small part of the Riesling by itself, just to see. I had something in my mind, but uh, actually I didn't have the instrument to, to do it, so... I wanted to vinify uh, Riesling uh, in a sort of Mosel style, so in a sor- sort of Spätlese, uh, lighting alcohol with small sugar. But actually, I had to find out that uh, I didn't have the instrument to keep it to right. the fermentation. And so the wine went dry, and I had to put in a tonneau because I didn't have anything safe to put the wine inside for a small quantity. So actually, it's not the wine I had in my mind, 
but the wine is uh, great. It was just 300 bottles and uh, 180 magnums, uh, so it was just uh, just a trial. But uh, just to give you the idea, this year I planted another 4,000 plants of Riesling. So it's um, something will happen, and probably in uh, a bit bigger numbers than uh, Argento 47, AG47, mm. the name of the experiment vineyard. And that's dedicated to your wife, right? <laughs> it's yes, it's a bit. My <laughs> wife is called Anna Graziani, and forty-seven was my age. At the same time, Argento, because in my mind, would have been something so light and transparent. And mm-hmm. so, in the future, will be Argento forty-seven and mm-hmm. Anna Graziani forty-seven. Who knows? Anyway, the wine uh, hopefully will be good. Well, we should all be um, looking forward to it and stay tuned, everyone. So I'm aware of the time um, and I was told that, you know, there are only a few minutes left. So perhaps I will pass back to Stevie to conclude. Yes, I just can answer a question uh, I can read about exporting the U.S. I'm working in uh, New York, New Jersey with the soil air. And I'm working with a very small importer in Virginia called uh, Williams Corner. And I'm starting uh, in January with uh, California, the source, the wine source. Okay, well, thank you. That was so thorough. You even took care of the questions. I love it. Charlotte, thank you so much for hosting this i hope you you can hear me okay uh i still have poor connection signal so i'm mean, just in case i drop off maybe like i can take over like tell us what's going on next what's going on is tomorrow is going to be with barbara um she will be interviewing massimiliano apollonio so yeah that's it tomorrow at 5 30 p.m Okay, I just want everyone to know that, you know, the offices will be closed for two weeks. But thanks to Laika and the team in Verona and in Ecuador, in Philippines, everyone still be guaranteed a pod every single day. I think that deserves a round of applause, Laika. (laughs) Yay! Okay, Charlotte, uh, as you are so exceptional, I love your um, hosting this. You're a great ma. Thank you for doing this today. Federico, thank you for joining us today with your your great, great conversation. And I hope to see you very soon here or there. And that's it. I'm going to wrap it up and signing off till tomorrow then. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Stevie. Thank okay, you. ciao ragazzi. Thank you. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.